Hello, and welcome to the Green Tea Party, where we discuss conservative solutions to environmental problems. My name is Zach Torpy, and I'm Katie Zakreski. Together, we'll guide you through complex issues and provide strategies to address them, all while remaining faithful to our conservative values. Trust me, it'll be a good time. Yeah, it's a party. So grab your mugs and we'll pour the tea. I'm getting ready for Thanksgiving and I'm a strict vegan, as everyone knows. I have not eaten meat in about 16 years, but one of my favorite dishes before I went vegan was called turducken. Are you familiar with turducken? Yeah, that's when you got the the turkey, the duck, I think chicken also. Yeah. <laughs> All so stuffed in one thing. Stuffed in, <laughs> duck stuffed in the turkey. How And then with bread stuffed inside the chicken. Can anyone explain to me who thought of this? <laughs> like, Zach, I, why? <laughs> <laughs> Just make as much meat as possible in one, one single dish. I, I mean, looking back, I don't even think I liked it that much. I think I just thought the idea was absolutely absurd, so I was entertained by it. But the vegan version is called Hofucken. Excuse my French. <laughs> but what is that? What, what is that exactly? Some crumbled, I believe it's tempeh, crumbled tempeh, stuffed inside of a block of sperm tofu, right? Stuffed inside a block of Satan. So... It's all a, bunch, a whole bunch of different vegan proteins, but it's the same Russian testing doll type scenario. But I think it's <laughs> hilarious every every Thanksgiving when I roll up with my toe fucking because it's just like, <laughs> I love just saying it to people, give my grandma's reaction. She's like, oh no, how dare you say that? I'm like, I'm saying tofu fucking. <laughs> just, the, just the most ridiculous thing it sounds. It, I think that vegetarians thing. and vegans, they, they make cooking, they bring it to like the next level. Like, to make food good as a vegetarian, you have to be a much better cook than to cook meat. Because meat's always good. And mm-hmm. vegan, I can imagine just me like, must be so much harder, much more difficult to make just taste that, get that good taste that you get from meat. So True. that's impressive. Well, one thing you have to think about is that meat really just has the flavor of fat, if that makes sense, and kind of like a protein taste. Most of the flavor of meat actually comes from the seasonings that people use, right? So like you think of like a steak, you might rub some rosemary and garlic on that. Well, you're going to get the same flavor, maybe not the same texture, if you mix rosemary with olive oil or any other fat that's vegan and then put it on some vegetables or a potato. It's kind of the same flavor, not quite the same texture. So I always like to remind people that I'm like, meat is just tasty because it has delicious fat in it and you put delicious seasonings in it right you can put that delicious fat and delicious seasonings in things that are not not you know dead animals excuse my <laughs> veganism you know katie has her soapbox about so many things my soapbox that i whip out is my veganism soapbox and it's it's from it's how i speak from the heart i speak from the heart whenever i speak about veganism well, we'll have to do an episode on environmental eating some at some point yeah, we definitely will. Oh my gosh, we're gonna. I mean, gosh, that would be, that would send me. I would just be like, oh, so excited. Sorry, I would enter a frenzy. Is as how my friends would put it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to the rest of this interview with David Jenkins. He's been so amazing to listen to, and is such an expert and brings so much experience that you just learn. I'm just learning so much listening to him. And yeah, I feel like David it's a great Jenkins experience. is the the. 
what are they called? What are the children, the ch- the kids this day, the children this day, let's call it. It's, um, uh, he's the goat. The greatest of all time. The greatest the- of all time? I thought it was the god of us all. No, it's the greatest of all time. Maybe, oh. maybe the Church of Latter-day Saints has their own version. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'll have to ask. Okay. Well, I'm excited too. Let's welcome David Jenkins on. David is the president of the Conservatives for Responsible Stewardship. He's got experience working under numerous administrations, worked under, he said he worked under Reagan back in the day, I guess when he first started. So he's got years of experience lobbying for environmental goals and proving proving his mettle against uh, both sides of the aisle. Oh my gosh. David Jenkins, I have an intellectual <laughs> crush on you. That is so cool. That is like amazing. I'm so glad that we've got him on the show. So, I mean, that just adds some little little bit of steam in the engine of the Green Tea Party radio, am I right? Yeah, and he's also a quote machine. He just brings out conservative environmental quotes from from his memory, just off the top of his head. Very impressive. Wow. It's very fun to listen to. Wow. Wow. This is going to be really exciting. Let's get into it. And part two of our interview with David Jenkins. All right. Hope you guys enjoy. So, David, maybe I'm naive, but I'm an optimist. We've heard a lot of (laughs) unfortunate news (laughs) about how the world works and and how the government works in the last few minutes. But I don't want to dwell on the negative. I want to have some hope. I want to have some optimism for the future. Are there certain policies or pieces of legislation that you're a really big fan of? You know, knowing the things that you do when you take a step back, whether it's a carbon price or a carbon credit system or... If there are pieces of legislation right now, like the RISE Act or anything like that, is anything on your radar right now is something that you can see being potentially helpful? Well, it's interesting. In the past, we've been in favor of, you know, whether it's cap and dividend or carbon tax or carbon fee and dividend, all those things. But if you look at it carefully and you look at the energy market right now, the energy market in terms of price favors solar, wind, and nuclear over coal and natural gas. We've always been pro-market, right? What, I, what boggles my mind is when people who claim to be conservative, they, they want to follow the market when it favors oil and gas, but then when it favors renewables or you see the market like, EVs getting adopted, you know, electric vehicles being adopted more. All of a sudden, they come out against it. It's like, but it's the market. It's what it We're does. supposed to support the market. It's doing what it does, yeah. And, 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 you know, there's no red or blue or left or right energy. It's all energy. And what makes sense at a given time, it's based on what the market's doing and what technology offers. So it makes no sense to fight something as being lefty that's just energy, because it's not. It's not. It's you know, it's not. It's it's. There's no it's left a natural right. transition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we don't pay for things with salt anymore like we used to a long time ago, or, or use <laughs> uh, well blubber. So th- things change. So our message to people is: follow the market. Look at what the market's doing. If, like, okay, I'll give you an example in Arizona. Solar plus battery storage for nighttime operation is selling for between $15 and $25 a megawatt hour. Yet there's a coal plant called Four Corners that 
provides a lot of Arizona's electricity. The cost of that electricity is $85 a megawatt hour. So if you're if you're an electric customer, would you rather pay fifteen to twenty five dollars a megawatt hour that's guaranteed to be that price for the next twenty years through a power purchase agreement, or do you want to pay for the eighty five dollar per megawatt hour call? Yeah, I'll take the solar. Yeah, (laughs) easy. Not even an argument needed to be made. That is crazy. Yeah. So if you just look at the numbers, the market is favoring renewables and 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 even nuclear. There's a lot of nuclear out there now because, you know, nuclear, most of the cost is up front when you build the plant. After that, the operating cost is pretty low. And there's a lot of nuclear out there that's selling for cheaper than natural gas, selling for like $29 a megawatt hour. And natural gas is like 50. We've all been fans of nuclear. Well, let's let's be more fans of nuclear because, you know, that's that's going to win out in the long run. It may have had some rocky times before, but it's, it's starting to emerge as economical now. In terms of policy legislation, one thing that we've been supporting the last couple of years has been clean energy standards at the state level. So a clean energy standard means nuclear is included, anything that doesn't emit carbon dioxide, your greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So if you set a clean energy, let's say you say 100% clean by 2050 or 2060 or 2070, it doesn't matter. The utilities that build these power plants have to think about the lifespan of that plant. So if you have a clean energy standard that says 100% clean by this time in the future, you're instructing how they invest going forward. You're not hurting them now. You're not forcing them to retire anything early because most of the gas and coal plants are 20, 30 years old. What you're saying is if you build this now, you're going, you might not get the full life expectancy out of it because you're up against that hard ceiling of a clean energy standard. So then they're going to go, they can do whatever. They could do hydrogen, they could do solar, they could do wind, they could do hydropower, geothermal, whatever. But you just got to make sure that you're investing in a way that gets us to that clean standard, nuclear, get just to that clean standard by 2050 or 2060 or 2070, whatever it is. And you're not hurting business. You're actually helping business. You're giving them regulatory certainty so that they can plan for the future. What's going to happen if you take a pass on it and you let them build whatever they want to, and then in 20 years, it's like, oh, my gosh, we can't have any more of this gas. The the place is falling apart. So now you're going to have a stranded asset that you never paid for. What's that going to do to power bills? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Make it simple, make it easy, make it so they know what's coming, what the plan is going forward. That way they can plan, build their profits off of that. So to me, that's a conservative market-friendly solution. Absolutely. Wow. So And 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 the messaging around the cap and uh, the fee and dividend proposal is kind of dated because the whole concept behind fee and dividend was that we put a price on carbon and then because your electricity, your energy rates will go up, we're going to give that money that we collect back to the people to offset those costs. But when the market's favoring solar and, nu- and uh, nuclear and wind, there's nothing to offset. Right? So if you message around that, you're like trying to claim that somehow our energy prices are going up for doing the right thing when actually the opposite is true. Our energy prices are going down for doing the right thing. 
Yeah, that's all about the messaging. Really got to convey the proper message to make sure they understand. Yeah. That's a great point. So, I never thought about that. So in a lot of ways, some of the lefty environmental groups are actually counter-messaging what they need to be messaging. Wow. Because they're stuck on solutions that are 10 years old. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it like that. That so much of this not only needs to be translated in a way that obviously not just leftists can stomach, but also updated to, you know, reflect the, the current market, current energy trends, and still be deemed, you know, competitive in that sense. So, David, obviously, you know, this is a show by young conservatives for young conservatives, and you've got a lot of excellent experience, and I think great advice comes with having a lot of excellent experience. So what is some advice that you would offer to young conservatives who are um, listening to the show, whether it's moving forward with a conservative environmental career or juggling both of those assets, what is just some general advice that you would give to young environmental conservatives? Well, number one is be bold. I think you've got to, if you care about climate and things like that, you've got to speak up about it. And you've got to go to the places where you've got the skeptics, where, where some of these this misinformation has sort of settled in and it's hard to get people unstuck. And you can, you can get these people unstuck. If you're one of them, you're in the meetings and you're raising these issues and you underpin all your arguments with genuine conservative values and ideas. I like to quote Reagan a lot. That always helps break the ice. So, but you, you gotta be there. You know, I go to a lot of these uh, conservative club meetings and the average age is, well, north of 50. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> so the young people who care about this stuff need to mix in and interject, you know, the good information they have and the concerns they have and how that affects them as conservatives and interject that into the discussion. Otherwise, like you said, feedback loops. You've got these same people just reinforcing their own misinformation <laughs> and it doesn't, doesn't work. So they need to, you, you know, what is this? You know, the old saying is half the battle showing up or 90% of whatever it is. That's what you got to do. You got to yeah, care enough to show up. It's not enough and, to tweet uh, about it anymore. You've got to be there. Well, you, you do all of it. Point. You yeah. do all of it, but you, and relationships, you've got to build relationships. They, you know, one thing that helps me is that, there is no questioning that I'm a true conservative. I mean, you know, they can they can research me and Google me till the till the cows come home. <laughs> you know, they're not going to find anything suspect. And so they trust you if you're a conservative. And if they know if they know your information is is truthful and you're a straight shooter. And that trust doesn't come always instantly. Sometimes you have to build it over time. But being there. And also, I can't stress enough how our elected representatives need to hear from conservatives. I had one time, this was quite a while ago, but I had a staffer in a congressional office say, you know, he said, if I get a letter, if we get letters from 30 of your people, that is more important to us than getting 5,000 Sierra Club postcards. <laughs> okay so we have the power i mean it should i guess you could argue from a good governance standpoint that maybe these you know 
since these people are supposed to represent everybody, it shouldn't be that big of a difference, but it makes a difference. They want to hear from conservatives because, you know, the more you're concerned about the base, they run scared. And if they know conservatives like them care about this stuff, it gives them courage. And that's what we need. That's powerful. So how can individuals get involved with conservatives for responsible stewardship? Well, our website's a good good place to start. Uh, go to uh, conservativestewards.org. We're also on Twitter and on Facebook. But I would urge people to join. It's free. And then when we send out alerts and things like that, act on them. And one thing that we're always looking for, there's, you know, there's a lot of members and people I know that they have their lives, everything's busy. But those people who care enough to go to a meet, to a, a public meeting or go meet with their, their congressman or state senator or state house representative or write a letter to the editor about these issues. We need more of those people. Because like I said, it's a lot about amplification. And you know, one thing DeSantis told someone after he vetoed that bad net metering bill, he said, I have gotten more compliments on that veto, he's telling people over dinner, than I have anything else I've done as governor. <laughs> and we know those compliments didn't come from the left because he wouldn't care about those. It was the people that heard what we said on talk radio and took that to heart and they let him know about it. And they were pleased when he vetoed that bill. We can do that all across the board. We just got to put the effort in. And I, that's, that would be my message to uh, people to get involved. And doing it under our banner is, <laughs> is all the better. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're coming to an end here, but we'd like to close on a fun note. David, what is your favorite national park and your favorite environmental quote? Okay, well... My favorite national park is Glacier National Park in Montana. There's something about the scenery there that just is magical and the wildlife. I mean, I've never been there without running into multiple grizzly bears. So, <laughs> Hopefully not uh, too close. Well, that's actually, I, I love that because it's kind of, you know, it it's the kind of humility we need to understand that, you know, we need to interact. We need to understand the environment. If you understand how to interact with things like that, then you're better for it. And so, you know, I, just a quick thing. My wife and I were uh, on our honeymoon and we were camping in Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska. And we put our tent in a place where we didn't see any bear tracks. So because we, <laughs> we wanted to, and we just went to sleep. The next morning we woke up, there were hundreds of bear tracks around our tent. <laughs> and they were curious. They were coming up and they were checking out the tent and everything. And these were big brown grizzly, you know, grizzly type bears. And so we were just inches away from a whole bunch of bears and had no problem. But and, and these paw prints, you could fit a gallon milk jug in the palm. It's oh my gosh. So, that so is anyway, crazy. Um, but yeah, glacier, glacier is one one of my favorites. I haven't been to all of them, but, uh, but I love Glacier. In terms of quotes, I got, I'll give you two. One of my quotes, favorite quotes is from T.S. Eliot. He's a conservative poet. He said, a wrong attitude towards nature implies somewhere a wrong attitude towards God. And if you think about that, 
And if you care about creation and, and our obligation as Christian stewards, that should tell you everything you need to know. And then another one's from Edmund Burke. He said, society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there be within, the more there must be without. What he's saying there is that if you have self-control and you can control your will and appetite, then that's good. But if, when, when we people lack self-control, then that control has to come from somewhere else. And that's the role of government. So if we want government to do less, we need to be more responsible. Wow, excellent. What a powerful note to, to, to wrap up on. Wow, David, thank you so much for joining us today. It sounds like you're up to great stuff and thank you for sharing some of that with us today. Oh yeah, yeah thank you for great. having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Fabulous. Really appreciate you coming. <laughs>
Congresswoman Nancy Mace, meteorologist Marshall Shepard. Each week, we have a conversation with an eco-right leader bringing you information, opinions, personal stories, and much, much more. Download, listen, subscribe, and join us each week on the Eco-Right Speaks.